Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, TGIF. Lordy, what a week. We are broadcasting this around 6 p.m. Our interns are enmeshed, as is often the case these days in Fortnite and Discord, and we are about to pop open a cold, delicious Chimay beer to bookmark the end of a zany few days. We were excited to take a break this week and catch up with Mike Jones and Peter Pham, the founders of Science Inc., an L.A.-based startup studio and venture firm that many listeners will know already. We call them because, like a lot of VCs, they just joined the parade of investors who are rolling out blank check companies onto the public market in search of a privately held business to take public, though we really wound up spending more time talking about how to build a direct-to-consumer brand in this ever more crowded market. It was a really interesting chat. We learned a lot. We think you'll enjoy it. But first, we are going to jump right into a couple of the week's biggest news stories. The big story this week is GameStop, a retail chain selling video games, consumer electronics, and gaming merchandise that has seen its stock soar almost 2,500% since the beginning of the year. GameStop closed the week at a share price of $312, more than a 3x rise over Monday's opening. Can anything new be said about this crazy story that has not already been hashed over by talking heads the world over? While conventional wisdom is that retail investors inspired by a Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets set out to take on Wall Street short sellers by bidding up a dog, the reality may be a little more nuanced. In an article in today's Bloomberg, Matt Levine points out that retail buyers have been selling as much as they have been buying. On Monday, retail investors were big buyers of GameStop's shares, but they have been net sellers of the stock for the rest of the week. The implication is that other forces have been pushing GameStop to new heights. Hedge funds and proprietary trading firms, algorithmic high-frequency traders, and professional day trading shops, for example. Everyone knows this story will end badly. Hedge fund Melvin Capital had to close its short position at a huge loss and accept a $2.75 billion bailout from two other hedge funds. And Robinhood was forced to shut off trading in GameStop and a few other Reddit-backed stocks before accepting a cash infusion on undoubtedly onerous terms from Sequoia Capital and Ribbit Capital. And then there are the retail investors egged on by Chamath Palahapatiya's boastful tweets and Elon Musk's exhortations to get shorty. Many of these small investors have undoubtedly bet their financial futures on a game they really don't understand. Nevertheless, the biggest loser may be GameStop itself. When all of this is said and done, when GME has crashed and burned and settles back into its small cap graveyard, GameStop will still be a money-losing retailer with the same humble balance sheet in a rapidly diminishing segment that has seen revenues fall 30% over the last four quarters. Not a pretty picture, and you can take that to the bank. In other news, a company was in the headlines this week that has something in common with Robinhood, and that is WeWork. What's the through line? They're both multi-billion dollar companies that were planning to tap the public markets when disaster struck. It's too soon to know if this past week will derail Robinhood's IPO. It's a matter of seeing how serious a case of attrition it has on its hands. Of course, we already know that WeWork had to abandon any hope of moving forward with its traditional IPO back in the fall of 2019, after the world took a hard look at its S1 and said, eh, no thanks. But all hope is apparently not lost. WeWork is now in talks with numerous special acquisition companies, or SPACs, in order to go public, the Wall Street Journal first reported yesterday and we later confirmed. 
The apparent frontrunner is the blank check company Bo Capital Management, which is run by Vivek Ranadiv, the founder of Tibco Software and the chairman of the Sacramento Kings. We were told by somebody close to the company that it's still receiving inbound interest in another round of funding too, but the SPAC scenario seems like a very plausible one. This is, after all, an 11-year-old company at this point. As a real estate VC, Zach Ahrens of Metaprop, who I caught up with yesterday, said, there are a lot of people who want liquidity here, including early backers like Benchmark and especially SoftBank, which kept stuffing checks into WeWork and marking up the company's valuation and ultimately invested at least $18.5 billion into this company and naturally wants to get some of its money out. As for a traditional IPO, maybe that could happen. But Ahrens noted that there aren't really going to be a lot of bankers who want to go down that path again with WeWork. There's just a lot of baggage there. It would also take a lot longer than a SPAC. And WeWork, which laid off about a third of its workforce last year and expects to turn profitable this year, is still a company that needs access to capital. There is a third option for WeWork, which would be to sell, but it's a little hard to know who would want to pay what WeWork thinks it's worth, which, judging from that journal report, is around $10 billion. One thing we do know is that $10 billion is not too big for a SPAC deal. We saw a mortgage company go public last week via SPAC that was valued at $17 billion. One other final funny note, it'll be curious to see if whatever happens will be worked into an upcoming Apple television series coming up that centers on the real-life story of WeWork. It was announced earlier today that Anne Hathaway will star as Rebecca Newman, who helped her husband start WeWork, and Jared Leto, who will star as Adam Newman. Lido's casting is particularly notable given that Lido was actually an early investor in WeWork, writing at a check at its Series A round, so likely they know one another. Of course, I'm sure Lido never anticipated that he'd be playing Newman in a TV series that dramatizes his company's rise and fall, but such is the beauty of life and its many surprises. Up next, our interview with Mike Jones and Peter Pham of Science Inc. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Montgomery Summit on March 3rd and 4th is one of the nation's oldest and most prestigious conferences, convening investors and entrepreneurs from around the world to explore the intersection of innovation, technology, and capital. This year, we're going virtual and making our exclusive conference open to the public for the first time. We will have over 100 speakers, including Eric Young of Zoom, Alex Taylor Cox, Jim Whitehurst of IBM, Deepak Chopra, and Bill McDermott of ServiceNow. For VIP access to private company presentations, one-on-one meetings, and roundtable discussions, purchase a full access pass with the Strictly VC members only discount code of SVC-20RUN. Register now at www.monty.com. our interview with Peter Pham and Mike Jones of Science. Before co-founding Science, Pham co-founded several startups, including a photo-sharing site called Photobucket that he later sold to MySpace for a reported $250 million. Jones, meanwhile, founded Userplane, an early instant messaging service, and later became the CEO of MySpace for a couple of years in a bid to turn around the social media company. The two came together to form Science in 2011, and they've since invested in a wide number of companies whose name you might recognize, or you will someday. Some of the companies they've helped to shape from the beginning, including MeUndies, a subscription underwear brand that they incubated but did not back with their venture fund, and Liquid Death, a water company that's selling, well, 
attitude, really, and that science helped to incubate and to which science has also written venture checks. Maybe unsurprisingly, given that science is a two-pronged business, we talked with Jones, who oversees the studio side, and with Pham, who oversees the venture side, about what happens when Pham doesn't want to write a check to a company that was built by Jones and others on the studio side. We also discussed the launch of their SPAC this week and talked about why a canned water brand may prove their biggest success story yet. Guys, I'm so glad to be talking with you today. We figured we would start with the news of the week, which is that your Santa Monica-based incubator and investment firm, Science, took public a $270 million blank check company this week. And you've said it's going to focus on businesses operating in direct-to-consumer brands, services, and mobile and social entertainment. So Science is not a traditional venture firm in ways that we'll get into, but why do this? Sure. This is Mike. I founded the firm with Peter and Tom and Greg, our core four founders. And we founded the firm back in 2011. And I think Peter and I specifically saw the idea of a truly partnership-driven venture firm, somewhere where we could actually help build companies, invest in companies, and scale with those businesses. Over the first nine years, we obviously focused initially on our studio business, where we helped build companies. Then we expanded into having our venture fund that supported the funding for the first few rounds of that business's journey. And then eventually, we started looking on how we get into the later stage moment. And I'm sure as Peter can attest, there's so many later stage funds that we're obviously super to be in business with through our different deals. But we started looking at the SPAC vehicle. It was something we had explored years and years ago and had some super positive conversations and obviously really saw Chamath lead the charge for this, what we'd consider this barbell approach to investing. So science expanded its strategy. On one hand, we work at the earliest moments of company formation. And then now we're working on the very last moment when that company is entering into the public markets. And this is a strategy as a partnership we're obviously super excited about. This is our first SPAC and it was very well received in the market. So it sounds like you are going to target something that you have funded and possibly even incubated at Science. Am I hearing you correctly? No. So the SPAC is an independent entity. We think that there's a universe of well over 100 companies that would fit the credentials of what we're looking for within the SPAC. Some of those companies we may or may not have investment exposure within, but the process of analysis is independent of the science portfolio. And we're actually only starting company outreach tomorrow. So we haven't started talking to any companies tomorrow. It'll be the first day when we're permitted to really talk to targets. But you wouldn't rule out a company in your portfolio? We have independent directors, so there's a different process that would go through if we were looking at a company in the portfolio. But right now, we're just aggregating the right universe of potential targets, and then we'll go through a formal process on it. What we've always seen is startups succeed because big, big companies have lost touch with what's the next big thing and what's driving growth and what consumers really want. And for us, I think adding that valuable insights where we're seeing across the portfolio of our existing companies, we're incubating investing and applying it to these hundred companies. Some of these companies we've known since they first started five, seven, 10 years ago and have known these founders, have helped them at some point, whether advising them or maybe even being an investor. So our perspective is that helping these larger companies go to the finish line, we still have a tremendous amount of insights day to day right now that can be helpful for them. I'm wondering what metrics you're looking for. I'm wondering if companies that you're targeting have to be profitable. We're seeing, obviously, a lot of startups in the car space that are going public. And of course, these are capital-intensive businesses that are expected to take a while to produce any profit. Do the companies that you think you'll be talking with have to be closer or past that mark at this point? What's nice is if you think about the hundreds of companies we've been involved in for the last nine, 10 years, 
they really fall within three core business models, right? It's direct-to-consumer commerce, it's service marketplaces, and then it's mobile-oriented entertainment. And we've made our lives really easy because we've become specialists at these three very particular business models. So when we look at the different potential companies that we're interested in, it's not saying that they have to have some specific level of profitability or specific level of revenue. We have underlying core metrics that we believe drive the long-term success of these types of companies within these business models we're experts in. And we're really just evaluating from that lens with the historical data of the portfolio we looked at, the expertise that we have within these specific sectors, and then looking at the future trajectory of one of these businesses. And we're obviously looking for a business to Peter's point that we can help grow once they're in the public markets. So if you can just elaborate on that for a second, Mike, what are those qualities that you're looking for? Well, luckily, those are very particular and proprietary for us, right? So we don't obviously expose the core metrics and revenue drivers that we think make for successful companies within these sectors, but we're a super data-focused team. We're very much on the forefront of next-generation, Gen Z, and millennial-oriented marketing. And there's very specific things we look for that we think may build breakout brands. And as you can look through our portfolio, I think you can find we have quite a few breakout millennial-driven brands that we've selected in the venture side of the world because of these core metrics. But to answer your question, to some degree, revenue is important. The market has to react and the retail investors have to look at this and say, this is something I want to invest in because I believe over the growth of this business, there will be increase in value. We won't be taking any electric cars, I would imagine. On the social entertainment side, Mike, obviously you were involved with MySpace and the social media space extremely well. I'm just curious what some of your thoughts are with regards to Facebook and Twitter and some of the political issues that they have run into. And in particular, Twitter is talking about open sourcing its platform. There are other new social media plays that are gaining a lot of attention, such as Clubhouse. Are there any investments in that area that you're looking at? Well, so I can't talk about investments you're looking at, but let me comment on the first piece. And then I think Peter's actually better to comment on the second. So on the first piece, I think we live in an interesting moment where the majority of our society is getting their news and daily information from one or two giant platforms. And as we know, those giant platforms have a lot of power and they move things around a lot. And when they decide to silence people or change rules, it creates a really unique moment in our democracy. I don't think it can be ignored. And I suspect in the long run, there's going to be a lot of changes around that, which is fine. I mean, I think it's the first time in history, if you imagine yourself, where you could reach so many people globally through a single platform. But as Peter originally mentioned, and I think he's best to comment on, Peter spends so much time with our venture-oriented businesses, and they're always looking for new growth channels. And I know, because I see him talking to our CEOs all the time about TikTok and, and Clubhouse, Peter, why don't you give me your impression on what's going on in those platforms? We've been doing science now for a decade, and MySpace days, uh, PhotoBucket for me, we've been touching social for, for over 15 years. And the acceleration of new things, I think in the last decade, you've noticed, like a decade ago, that's when YouTube was a platform for marketing. And then six, seven years ago, it became Instagram. And, and then Snapchat came along. And then all of a sudden, back to Instagram and Instagram stories. And now TikTok, seemingly relatively, what, two and a half years, but really, let's say the last year. And now another platform, which is Clubhouse. What's interesting is there's always something new coming around the corner, but you can't keep your eye off of Facebook, Instagram. Snapchat. Clubhouse is real. The audience is massive. It's almost like this podcast, right? But it's radio, but it's participatory. It's almost a 24-7 South by Southwest. There's panels, unlimited, you can join, and there's this 
really interesting dynamic where you could be in the crowd, raise your hand, and they'll pull you up on stage. Now you're part of the panel. That's why a lot of people are there for the chance of getting discovered, chance of letting their voice be heard to a larger audience. I'm definitely a believer in Clubhouse and TikTok. The entertainment value, the algorithm that they have, it's completely different from any other place. Instagram is where you know, everyone's life is better than yours. TikTok is a place for entertainment and learning. I mean, you can learn math. You can learn science. You can learn how to make money. I mean, it's very an interesting educational platform to some degree and entertainment. And then there's always YouTube, which is, for many, the you know, alternative television. Then there's Discord, right? There's always going to be something else. And I think for us in science, that's what we bring to the table. When we think about companies that we are talking to as a SPAC perspective, over the last five years, they grew up growing their business and reaching consumers, most likely a one or two platforms, Facebook or Instagram, maybe Snapchat. The next three, five years of growth is going to be new places like TikTok or Discord or Clubhouse as it grows, right? And what do we do back, come back to Twitter? So all these things continue to evolve. I'm more excited that we get to be on top of the trends of the early companies and hyper fast growth, like what we're seeing with liquid death. And why is that working? Well, there's a lot of reasons. And how do we apply that to these other companies that have been around for a while that have massive growth and really big and are always trying to find new channels to grow? I definitely want to talk to you about liquid death. Before we move on, I am curious, your insights into Clubhouse are really interesting. Likening it to a South by Southwest seems really apt. How are you both using it? Are you using it much? Are you voyeurs? Are you actively involved? For me personally, it's interesting. I've been waiting to join for a while, mostly because I wanted to observe who was inviting me, the types of folks. And when it jumped from just the tech to a lot of normal people, I call non-tech friends of mine that were texting me and inviting me. That's the moment. And then the other was marketers were on there. So the moment marketers join a platform, that's when it's real. Marketers are the people who are selling classes on how to make money, how to be an entrepreneur, how to make money in real estate, you know, that type of class of marketers. It happens in every platform. And when that happens, it's an arbitrage. It's basically very smart people who make a lot of money realizing for every minute they spend doing this, it's more valuable in terms of uh, ROI, right? customer acquisition costs, mm-hmm. the revenue, than spending time on this other thing that everyone else is on. Got it. So I just had a couple of last SPAC related questions before we move on. I'm still trying to understand how an eventual combination gets priced. So your investors paid $10 per share. Once you target a company, you will presumably work with a syndicate of investors who will agree to a private placement, meaning they'll kick in more funding that will go to the target company in exchange for part of its business. But then like once the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and it starts trading, how is that price established? So we're really fortunate because we were able to hire a woman named April Henry, who ran corporate development for me at MySpace and then subsequently worked over at Yahoo and then joined the science team. And she's done an incredible job in her career buying and selling businesses. So this is a fairly standard corporate development process. We have a company, the company sits on a certain amount of capital. We could expand the amount of capital if needed within that company through a pipe. And she will basically be evaluating all the potential targets. We'll be doing an analysis and then narrowing in on the companies that we're most compelled by that we think will be a best fit for us. And then we'll go through a traditional M&A process on determining the value of the company and then figuring out the mechanics of that combination. 
if you look it up, there's a lot written on it. But at the end of the day, there is a negotiation process on how we value the business. And obviously, there's a pretty easy understanding of the value that we bring as far as cash goes. And then obviously, there's a long-term value of science and the board members that will get involved in the business. But it's a typical M&A process. So it's, it's actually pretty simple. Okay, great, great, great. Thank you. And then also, I'm still trying to figure out where we are in this whole SPAC phenomenon. It seems like early innings. At the same time, I do sometimes have concerns that this huge private industry is moving onto the public markets really fast. And obviously, you guys know what you're doing, but that's not going to be true of everyone. And not all companies are ready. I'm starting to think this be like 2000, (laughs) where things move out too fast and, and everything blows up in everyone's face. I think this is a little bit of the result of a very growing later stage venture economy, right? So bigger and bigger late stage funds, allowing companies to stay private way longer with fairly easy access to capital, right? And suddenly what you end up with is a universe of some pretty incredible companies that are still private, but are probably ready to go public, right? And then you create value-add investors like us with operational backgrounds, and we're happy to go through the IPO process and get that company ready for us to acquire and then bring them into the public markets. But it makes for maybe a better process for them to enter those public markets. I think the risk is that if over the next few years, SPACs end up putting really poor quality companies into the public markets, it could tarnish the vehicle and make people a little bit more shy to engage in using a SPAC to get in the public markets. If we end up putting high quality companies and they perform really well, then I think this becomes a faster, more efficient way for companies to become public versus the traditional IPO process. I think a lot of ways this replaces the soft bank round for many companies, right? You do have to be ready. You have to be audited. You have to be ready to be a public company. And the expectations of that are real. And I think anybody who thinks that it's easy doesn't know what they're doing. Right? You become a public company CEO. And that's not for everyone. But there's been, what, 20, there's been 56 SPACs in 2021? Something like that. Something like 20 billion or more has been raised. They're coming on fast and furiously. Guys, I almost wanted to ask, you mentioned, obviously, you, you incubate companies, you have this venture fund or you know, venture funds that you're managing, and then you've got this back. How are you going to relegate your time? How much time will you spend on this effort versus your other efforts? Sure. Well, so from the venture side, obviously, that's primarily what Peter's been focused on as far as bringing our companies up for later and later rounds. And bring them to the venture industry. I work both with the studio and then working with the SPAC team, but Peter and I are both fortunate that we have April leading the SPAC initiative. And so she, along with our finance and internal legal team, will really be driving the process and doing the evaluation and obviously handling the M&A. So we're not a small partnership. Science is fairly well staffed, both with a, a large presence in LA and then a, a deeper engineering presence in India. And we've obviously been doing what we've been doing for a long time. So the expansion isn't really a reach for us. The reality is that stepping into the later stage businesses is really a return to our roots. It just took us until now to find the right way for the firm to enter into that market segment. Can you talk about how many companies you're incubating and also how your incubation process works with your venture process? Are there some companies that are started in your studios that are not backed by your venture arm? Listen, as far as numbers go, we have a studio team. They're incubating a number of companies. It's probably a little bit over 10 would be my guess right now. That team is responsible for working with the founders, developing a sustainable business model, getting them to a certain level of traction, and then presenting them to our venture fund. Pete, maybe you want to talk about from the moment that the studio company brings you a company that you like or don't like or has the right metrics or doesn't and how we go through that Yeah, I mean, I think for us, the venture fund 
is interesting because we have a different perspective of underwriting companies. If COVID showed anything, Zoom calls and venture rounds are happening with people never meeting the founder in person and gives, I think, this ability for anybody raising money to talk to unlimited amount of investors a week, right? There's no excuse to not be able to talk to somebody every hour on the hour. And I think venture ends up getting commoditized significantly even more this last year prior to what Y Combinator and the thousands of venture firms. And for us, having the studio allows us to take a look at our investments through a lens that allows us to underwrite it not from one Zoom call, but underwrite it from the last three months, six months, a year. The studio has been working with the founders on a day-to-day basis. And so for us, I think it's a massive advantage to be able to make an investment like Liquid Death, Right, knowing the fact that well, we were there when Mike first launched and started and sold the first can, and and understand him as the founder, which is very important, obviously, but also the core business. The highs are highs, and the lows are lows. Most people get pitched the graphs are always up and to the right, but the story and how they got there and all the moments when it was going down and then they recovered are really important to understand when you're making an investment decision. I guess I'm wondering about signaling risk. If there are companies that you start in the studio and you decide you're not going to fund them with your own money, what message does that send to the market? Well, that's always happened even the beginning of time. I think people talked about the Andreessen Harwood Seed Program and YC, et cetera. At the end of the day, a great company will always get money. There's enough investors and you're always trying to find the product, the company, the founder speaks to the investor. We've never had that problem. There are companies where we're not really seeing the trajectory and the growth that we think our LPs deserve and other investors will fill that. And we still have the option to follow and make sure we'll be helpful as obviously as much as possible and see if there's another moment in time for us to invest. But it hasn't been a signaling issue. And if I look over 10 years that we look back, they weren't, if we most likely ended up not a real company. So when you look at some of the companies that you have started through the studio, Liquid Death and Play Versus, do you get a percentage ownership for the participation in the studio program? And then when you're writing a check as a Series A investor from the venture round, I guess you're also then taking a percentage there. What size checks are you writing? We definitely wear two hats, right? The fund is buying preferred shares and just like any other investor would write a check and and buy equity versus the studio. So our check sizes are... Uh, ranging from 250 upwards to millions of dollars. We've put high single digits millions into two companies. So if we're all in, we keep putting more in because we're so close to that business. We see it better than anybody else. And it's a big advantage for us to understand the business differently than any other investor. And on the studio side, what percentage do you get? I mean, that's that's really a relationship between the portfolio company and the studio. We would never publicly talk about our terms, but they're going to come to some relationship between the value the studio is going to bring and then the founding team of the company. And, and at the end of the day, the studio team is going to figure that out. I didn't realize until today that you guys were involved in the origin story of Play Versus, which has become a huge company. Can you talk a little bit about how that came yeah, together? I met Delane on the dance floor at South by Southwest. Yeah. Really? So I, I attend the Culture House, which is a great event at South by. Before. It's been an organized event every year where Black founders, investors, and allies and friends have just come together. And Delane Parnell was introduced to me uh, by Susie Rue. And Mike and I had, and the science team have always been thinking about mobile entertainment, but just, just esports in general and what category and how we're going to participate in the space. And I met Delane, who was 24 years old. 
he was living in Detroit. He grew up in Detroit. Father was murdered before he was born, grew up in the projects, but had this intelligence and tenacity, particularly around esports, the love of it, that I convinced him to move out to LA. And he moved out about two months later. And we start working on Play versus in the offices of science. In 18 months, we ended up raising almost $100 million. So it's been quite a run, and he is just amazing. He's an amazing founder, building something that is important. It's the first sport in high school that's co-ed, which is really interesting of its own right. Giving people a chance to go to college through scholarships, create teamwork, have a leader, have mentors in a lot of places that really doesn't have that. So there's you know, a lot of positivity around that. And that is one of our, obviously, currently most funded company. And he's doing great. It's amazing, the trajectory of that company. And I noticed on your site that you do fund a lot of diverse founders. 65% of your second fund is invested in diverse founders. 82% of the studio companies are diverse founders, which is wonderful. I also wanted to ask you guys, so, so we've talked about Liquid Death a little bit, which is selling mountain water in an aluminum can. I love this brand. I think its tagline, Murder Your Thirst, is hilarious. You're also an investor in Me Undies, which raised, I saw, $40 million late last year through firm called Provenance. For people wondering how you guys keep managing to invest in fairly pedestrian products, you know, underwear, razors in the case of Dollar Shave Club, which you funded early on, how do you break through the noise and how has that changed in the last five years as so many D2C companies have sprung into existence? It's a good tribute to our studio team. I think that they're highly aware of what's trending and what's happening in the millennial Gen Z audience. As Peter mentioned, they're deep inside those next generation platforms and they're hunting for breakout brands. We got really fortunate early days with, with Dollar Shave Club. I think Liquid Death is on a very similar, incredible path about being that disruptive brand. And there's a number of other deals that we think are right on the heels there. But it's something that we take pride in, something that our team spends a lot of time on. They have some very unique approaches to finding companies that I think serves us extremely well. And then, as Peter mentioned, we do understand how to break through the noise on things. And when, we, when we're successfully able to do it, you end up with some great hits. Mike, if you could just drill down again, I know you don't want to give away anything too proprietary, but you mentioned their use of new platforms because that's one concern is that Facebook, Instagram, they're so saturated. So how are the newer platforms being taken advantage of? I'm going to defer to Peter. He is so much more active on these next-gen platforms than I am. So yeah. Peter, how do you, how do you I, think So there's two. It? I think like anything, the platforms are always just a springboard, right? You can't rely on these places long-term because the rules of the game change, the feed changes. I think in all the ones that we've ever saw the breakout, whether Dollar Shave Club, YouTube was the first platform that it really sprung. Ten years ago, when we launched Dollar Shave Club, we had on the homepage an autoplay of this YouTube video that really was just about to drive customers to buy something. And it's crazy as it sounds, 10 years ago, no one thought about putting YouTube videos to get somebody to buy something. MeUndies was really Instagram. Like who would imagine subscription underwear, but really every month there's a holiday. There's St. Patrick's Day, there's New Year's, there's Valentine's Day, there's Christmas. And what if there was something interesting, fun that you could wear? That was Miandi. So Liquid Death, we look at it and think, well, it's still actually very much Instagram and now probably TikTok, but the brand has to be worthy for somebody to talk about. What's interesting about it and why would somebody tell somebody else? And there's a special thing, which I think we measure significantly. Mike underplays it, but the data side, for the last 10 years and even today, we have very good pulse and we measure 
incessantly everything that's happening in terms of the each one of their businesses, what their social reach, what their engagements, but more importantly, down to the metrics of the business, retention, how often they're coming back, how much revenue we're generating from each individual, what's a piece of marketing worth? All of those kind of tie into this complex engine that we say, well, is there a business behind this thing? And can it grow on its own without this huge reliance on Facebook, right? Most companies, I think, ultimately could grow. The winner on the back end is most likely Google or Facebook if you don't understand how to build your own community, your own brand, and your own audience that will regardless find you, support you, and tell their friends about you. I want to take a minute and highlight Peter specifically in this. When Liquid Death pitched us, we all got very excited. We loved the fact that they were recognizing an audience that had been very overlooked. We obviously loved the fact that they were removing plastic from the ocean. But Peter, the early days when you were carrying Liquid Death around with you and telling me how people were responding to you, for me, that was just incredible hearing your experiences. Yeah, I've handed out 4,000 cans of Liquid Death personally. In the early days, I just remember handing it to a bunch of teenagers and six out of 10 would take a photo, snap it to their friend. It was just this instant moment I kept seeing over and over. What are you doing? Oh, I'm snapping it to my friend on Instagram stories. And that moment... I just knew this is going to work because people want to be interesting on Instagram, right? If you notice in March and April and May, how boring your Instagram feed was, everyone's staying home. There's nothing to do. But we gave somebody a piece of content. So for me, I spend a lot of time on these platforms, whether it's Insta and Snap and Clubhouse or TikTok. And I live in LA, which I think is very, very helpful and not the Bay Area. I ground myself of what is everybody doing? What's a 20-year-old doing? And so I, it's like chatting and talking, observing, and really understanding the emotional why. Mike and I have been involved with that psyche since the MySpace days. It turns out it's all teenagers and 20-something generally stay the same, right? They're insecure trying to find themselves, and all these things help them do that. I understand MeUndies business model and Dollar Shave's business model in the sense that they're subscription businesses. They also appeal to a more mature audience that perhaps is not as fickle as teenagers are. Liquid Death, from what I understand, is not a subscription product. Oh, you can subscribe. You can, but whether you're, you don't drink, but you love to party, if you hold it in your hand at a party or a bar, someone's going to talk to you. It's flair. It's a reason to say hi to somebody, right? It's an icebreaker. It's fun. It's irreverent. It's dumb. It's funny. It's everything to everybody, but something worthy to talk about, something to look at, and it's not plastic. I get the novelty of it, but what percentage of people sign up for a subscription deal? Well, just to be clear, I mean, we would never reveal data on our company. <laughs> One third of our customers online buy merchandise. Think about that for a moment. That's insane. Yeah. They're buying $24 hats, $45 hoodies. We're selling out merch constantly. The brand, it's a lifestyle. Mike Cesario, the CEO, would say he's building something that's like your favorite band. And the attitude that we have in the product lets you be a fan of the thing on top of the fact that it's not a piece of plastic that's going to go to the ocean. It's not sugar. It's not alcohol that might result in a drunk driving incident. So th there's these grounding truths that universally, whether you're a grandmother or a kid or a skateboarder or a punk rocker, you could rally and say, yeah, this is cool. We are currently the fastest growing beverage, non-alcohol of all time. And I can say that with confidence that this will be one of their biggest companies from zero to and at the trajectory we have. And it's hard. Some of it is very hard to measure because you have to see it. And when you see it over and over, it's just so obvious for me. 
every single day. It grabbed my attention right away. Is this a company that goes public eventually or is it acquired by a Danone? Do you know what the market cap for Monster Energy Drink is? $46 billion. Is it really? Oh my God. And Red Bull's private, people would say Red Bull's bigger, right? That's a brand. It's not just a beverage. Rockstar Energy sold for $3.5 billion last year. Core Water sold for $550 million after three years in existence, a year before that. I don't think about that so much because that's just a multiple of revenue. Peter, you mentioned being in L.A. and outside of the Silicon Valley bubble. I wonder, are you seeing an exodus from L.A. to places outside of California? I mean, aside from Elon Musk, I'm not seeing as much noise from Southern Californians about bailing on the state, whereas up here, the conversation right now is about who left, who's leaving, where they're headed. It's happening at a significant pace. Not to say it's dead in the Bay Area or L.A., but it's more than I would have expected, to be honest. Yeah, I keep wondering but, just but, how big but of- our memories are short. So I, I would also argue that a year from now, the revert to the means, it'll be back. I went to the Olympics after 9-11. And I remember people thought, that's crazy. That just happened. And then probably like six months after that, everyone went back to normal in terms of our behavior. Yeah, we got to take our shoes off the airport. But fundamentally, we were hypervigilant for six months a year. Our memories are short. This COVID, I'm so optimistic that in 90 days, it's basically over. We're going to have 4th of July. It's going to feel very normal. By this time next year, it's back to normal everywhere. Those that did remote, though, probably stay that or more hybrid because they adjusted and built their company culture that way, right? They understand how to communicate with employees. They understand how to collaborate. But it is hard to not be in the same physical location as everybody, to have the speed and process ideation product launches, cultural morale, all these things. Not to say it can't be done, and there are amazing companies that are doing it, but it's not for everybody. We have to always remember that uh, as you grow as a company, people are great at their jobs. Sometimes they're introverts. Sometimes they're extroverts. So forcing people to do one thing will change your talent pool differently as well. Yeah, completely agree. And I, I think also people appreciate much more than ever <laughs> how important just being in a physical space with other people is at least some part of the time. Yeah. And around other startups, running into other startups, talking to other founders, talking to other employees, VPs, talking to VPs across companies. There's ideas, there's collaborations, that energy. LA, I think, is definitely finally broken out. Dot LA and TechCrunch. We're finally getting the coverage hey, there are amazing startups here and there's going to be breakouts and they're hiring and Snapchat anchored everything down here for us in terms of validity of a behemoth of a company. And all those people are five years in, six years in, seven years in now. Guess what? People leave, people start companies. And we finally have the wheel that the Bay Area had with LinkedIn and Google and Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. We're finally starting to see those companies exit out Mike just left Dollar Shave. There's a base of employees there that have been there for 10 years. Right. That are ready to do their own things. Exactly. That's great. Well, Peter, again, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. I so appreciate it. I know Mike had to jump off a little bit ago, but you know, it's been too long. So it's a, yeah. it was a joy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>